Hello everyone, Soti, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we will be ask, answering questions people have about their meditation practice in this tradition, about incorporating practice into their daily lives, dealing with issues in their lives. If you have any questions, feel free to post them at any time in the chat. I'm asked to uh, remind people or let people know that these sessions are recorded. Of course, they're recorded by YouTube automatically, but they are also converted to audio and put on our website, sirimangalo.org, at podcast.sirimangalo.org. I have nothing to do with this, but it's really quite impressive. There's looks like there's hundreds and hundreds of talks from over the years. So probably the quality varies from talk to talk, but uh, you can check out the site, take what's good, and leave what's what's left. So if you want to catch up on or dip into any one of these sessions, you can check them out at podcast.suryamangala.org in, in audio, and I guess downloadable on mobile devices and such. Thank you to the people who put that together. So, as usual, we will start with 15 minutes or so of silent meditation, just an opportunity to collect ourselves and to collect questions. So in that 15 minutes before you start meditating, you can post your questions uh, in the chat. And at 15 minutes after the hour, we will come back and begin to answer whatever questions there are.
All right, we're back. So from here on, we will begin to ask and answer the questions. If you have more questions, you can still post them at any time in the chat. If you don't have any questions, just sit back and be mindful. If you have questions during the week, if you're watching this recorded or listening to it pre-recorded, um, you're welcome to post questions on our Discord server in the Ask Meditation Q&A channel. And our volunteers will pick them up and add them to the list. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. During sitting meditation, I have noticed that my breathing is not always abdominal and that the more prominent sensation of expansion and contraction varies in its location. I would like to know if I should choose a specific area of the abdomen to focus on, or if it is appropriate to pay attention to the more prominent sensation of expansion of the breath, regardless of where it arises in the torso. You should focus on the stomach, and if you need, you can put your hand on the stomach. The thing is, eventually, your your body is going, the stress and the tension in the body is going to relax, and you'll find it that's the most prominent movement anyway um yeah it's it's in your best interest in the long term to focus on just that if you do feel the expansion somewhere else you can note feeling feeling just take it as a temporary engagement where you note feeling feeling and go back to the stomach in the beginning it might happen that there's stress or tension keeping the the abdomen from expanding comfortably. But that should be a, a temporary thing. Could you explain the meaning of the term kaya gata sati and its relation to meditation? Kaya Gata Sati is a type of meditation. It um, and I guess it depends how you how you. It might be you might be able to relate it to our practice, but usually it refers to the thirty-two parts of the body. It's a different kind of meditation, so it's good for um, cultivating a sense of the not attractive nature of the body so of, of dispelling the delusion of, of attractiveness in the body by focusing on the, the parts of the body the hair the head hair on the head the hair on the body the nails teeth skin flesh and so on so it is a type of meditation but literally kaya gata sati means gone to meditation that is or mindfulness that has gone to the body which you could argue that what we do is also kaya gata sati, depending what you mean. I get very drawn into projects that take a lot of time and commitment. The end result feels rewarding and that I've been of value. Should I have spent the time meditating instead? Well, you should be mindful during your projects. You should be mindful during the liking of the result because that's as rewarding as it might be, it's also going to lead to attachment. It can lead to things like ego and pride as well. Uh, it can lead to a false sense of security and then complacency, feeling like you've done something with your life and you don't have to do anything else. But if you're mindful, you'll see that it's a pretty shallow sort of well, I mean, it has to be shallow because it's nothing in in this life that we ever do could ever have long term meaning in the face of eternity, in the face of the life of the earth, life of the planet, and that sort of thing. You know, the things we do are just temporary. So when you like the result, well, that just leads to clinging and clinging to something that isn't actually satisfying.
if you do that, you'll start to see that while meditation would help you to have a better perspective and maybe gain some deeper accomplishments, like freeing yourself from greed, anger, delusion, those kinds of things. In the context of the third precept, what is meant by protected by any relative? Does it mean a person kept as a virgin by parents, or living with parents, or having rent paid? Yeah, I don't really know. I think it's a sort of, I mean, I know kind of what it means in the context of Indian culture. Not really a meditation question. Uh, the third precept in term of the five precepts relates to uh, sexual or romantic activity that uh, causes harm. So uh, underage uh, relationships. Uh, I, I guess I would say underage relationships when you're of age. So someone who is over, I mean, they're illegal in most places anyway, but it's also probably unethical. Um I mean, people might argue that that it's it's just me it's just numbers, right? But there's harm there. And why it's made illegal is because of the harm, because there's inevitably an, an imbalance. One person is an adult and the other person is still uh, growing. You know, imagine a thirteen year old bride to a forty year old man or something like that. So certainly to that extent it's breaking the third precept. Because it's uh, it's not that's not a it's not a, a relationship of equals that's uh, abusive for sure. I mean, it's it's just not proper. Even if you might say we're if you might argue that there's love or something like that, it's just not a proper. It can't be because the one person is still growing, still still a child. Mentally, I mean, they're mentally not. They don't have the capacity to understand in the same way what's going on. So they can't provide consent, even though they think they, they might think they are. How do you explain people who are disciplined, focused, and stoic without any practice in mindfulness? Sometimes I get jealous because I meditate, but they suffer less without needing to. Well, we're all in a different place. Those people might be pretty impressive if they started meditating. Um, but you might find that as you become more mindful, you start to see the issues with their their ideas. And you, see, you can see how they are... Um, well, it's hard to see, honestly, because human life human life makes suffering hard to see. Not as hard as if you're an angel in heaven, but as a human, it's very—it's quite common to be in a situation where suffering is not evident, and that's not um, a sign that that there's nothing that needs to be done. It's a sign that you're being blinded, that you are ignorant of reality, and usually ignoring reality, because for many people in the world, suffering is an ever-present reality, even to the point of. Of, of leading to existences that are hellish. And that is a possibility for each and every person without exception. If not in this life, then in a future life. So, but because we are able to be in a situation that, that is uh, safe temporarily from suffering, we become negligent. And, you no, know, and, and, we appear to be to have everything together when you might say describe it as being a result of good karma one person might just live a happy life with a strong mind you have to ask yourself how are they under how are they under duress how are they when they don't get what they want how are they when they get what they don't want and i mean like really get what they don't want like when really bad things happen to them when even Arguing with these people often makes them angry or that sort of thing. Um, so um, people, there, there's 
so many, obviously, countless different personality types and ways a person can be. But ultimately, the only thing that has any real meaning is whether a person is susceptible to stress and suffering when things don't go their way or not, whether a person is free from that susceptibility. And that's important, and that's that's the most important thing because it speaks to um, it speaks to their consistency, the wanting to be happy. Yet they 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 react in such a way to certain experiences, in ways that make them unhappy. They they uh, also cling to states of happiness and peace, and when when life is going well. They cling to that, um, thinking that that they're doing something that increases their happiness or, or makes them happier. When in fact, the, the point being, clinging to good things makes you more vulnerable to losing them. And of course, as long as you don't lose what you want, you're fine. But when you aren't able to get what you want or when you get what you don't want you suffer and and again some for some people that's not very extreme some people are very content and do have a good presence of mind for whatever reason i mean ultimately because of the work they've done to get there in whatever way so it's not to discount their good qualities but again, there are countless different states of, of, of a person can be in. And some people, that just doesn't include an interest in bettering themselves. That interest in um, bettering themselves in the way that mindfulness allows them to better themselves. For some people, being disciplined and focused and stoic is enough. I mean, none of those three really speaks to the ability to be content in any situation, even when suffering arises. I guess so. I guess some of them. Yeah, I guess they're, they're generally positive, but they're not enough. Does indulging in sense pleasures hinder my practice? Well, it depends what you mean by indulging. So my practice, hopefully it's referring to the practice of mindfulness. And the practice of mindfulness is a skill. It's the development of a skill, an ability, a, a way of looking at the world that is sharp and clear and direct and accurate uh, based on, on the truth, based on the nature of reality. By indulging, if you mean uh, liking, which usually we would not describe it that way, but that would be an accurate, if we were, if we had a clear mind, it would be an accurate way. Usually we say enjoying. It's not that I like them, but I enjoy them. But the, the, the truth is you like them. There is liking that arises, uh, and liking is a habit in in and of itself. It leads to m more liking, more. It leads to wanting. Liking leads to wanting, and wanting leads to getting, and getting leads to more liking. And it's the very well uh, documented cycle of addiction. I mean, by scientists, it's a modern. There's a lot of modern evidence or or uh, study or knowledge surrounding the addiction cycle and more importantly liking has nothing to do with the reality of the experience so it's very different than being mindful liking of course also leads to disliking when you don't get what you want it leads to needing being dependent and so as a, a very different habit from being mindful it's going to very much com uh, conflict with uh, being mindful. Also because it leads to 
Um, Partiality and, and irrationality, it leads to manipulating others, it leads to um, violating other people's rights and that sort of thing by, by stealing and that sort of thing. And the anger as well that comes from not getting what you want also leads you to do and say things that cause harm to others. Because of all those states of mind, there's a very... Uh, meaningful lack of capacity to have a clear awareness of reality so these things get in the way greed blinds you anger blinds you they you can't see clearly when these things arise imagine remember when anytime you were in rage or anger you might kick things or or yell or say things that you don't mean and you just couldn't control yourself and the same with greed when you want something you you forget all about being mindful or, or trying to uh, be objective or anything like that. You just do whatever you can to get what you want, manipulating, lying, cheating, stealing. So um, the answer is, I guess, a, a resounding yes. Of course, it gets in the way. It's a different path altogether, and so it conflicts. I used to meditate and left meditation for so long now. I've been trying to get back into meditation, but I find it difficult to be persistent because I prefer to be doing something else. Any advice? Well, mindfulness is about seeing clearly your states of mind, including your preference. When you like to be doing something else, that's a valid and, and important object of meditation, of mindfulness. So when you want to do something, you're not wanting, wanting. When you feel aversion towards the idea of meditation, you should note that as well. Sounds like there are just some hindrances that are getting in your way. And if you start to be mindful of those, you'll find that there really is nothing getting in your way, nothing stopping you. What are the benefits of keeping eight precepts in lay life? I hear some people say it is good for spiritual progress, and others say it is unnecessary and extreme. What do you recommend for lay people? It is a, a um, fairly uh, in, intensive, I don't know what the right word is, but it's a high-level practice maybe. That's also not the right term, but it, it's a, it's not for everyone. So by high level, I just I don't mean like it makes you a better person than people who don't keep it. Though you could argue, you could say it's it, it's a better than eight precepts is better than five precepts, but it's not something to be proud of. Let's say that. But it is a high level practice, meaning it requires not just that it's impressive, but that it requires um, a, a level of commitment that is not reasonable for many people. There's nothing about it that's extreme or unnecessary. I mean, unnecessary, sure, but technically precepts at all are not necessary because you can become enlightened just by seeing clearly. But if you're not keeping the five precepts, you're, I mean, if you're breaking the five precepts, that is, an, is a very strong hindrance that is most likely going to make it impossible for you to progress. If you're not keeping the eight precepts, meaning if you're doing things in relation to breaking the, the let's say, the eight precepts that aren't included in the five precepts, the rest of them, um, like number six, seven, and eight, or number three with the changes to number three, if you're breaking those ones, then it's not that your practice can't progress, it's that it's going to be hindered, it's going to progress slower. So if you can keep the eight precepts without completely disrupting your life or um, breaking commitments you have to other people or that sort of thing, and by all means, it's a great practice. And and many lay people do did keep it, even in the time of the Buddha. Not most, but there were many who would keep it for their whole lives. That is a valid practice. So anyone who tells you that it's not good and, and extreme or something doesn't understand the Buddha's teaching, I think.
What is the best way to express gratitude when visiting a venerable monk in person? I feel very shy and unsure if I will say the right thing. I don't want to miss the chance to express gratitude. Well, I don't know. In English, we would say thank you. That's the... the uh, that's a I'm kind of kind of I suppose not not a fair answer, but I, I there is no you see what what makes something the best way is being mindful when you do it. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. Or even more being mindful when you when you consider doing something so that you're um decision of what to say and what to do is the best you can come up with it's it's based on on mindfulness and wisdom in in all cases that's always going to be the best when you feel shy and unsure those are unwholesome states and that's a sign that you probably shouldn't act or speak when you have those emotions you're better off to be mindful of them and only act and speak when you have uh, stabilized your mind and mindfulness now for most of us if in most things we do and say that's not reasonable because we're not very good at mindfulness so to suggest that we should always do and say things in with a state of mindfulness is is unreasonable but that's just a sign that we need more practice we're always going to be doing and saying the wrong thing or things in the wrong way or with an unwholesome at least partially unwholesome mind it's inevitable because we're not very skilled in in having a pure mind. So it does point very much to the need to train yourself before you go and and in this example, just as an example, thank a monk for uh, for uh, for helping you. Um, before you do that, train yourself, like for years or something. No, no, train yourself to the point where you're able to do it mindfully. But it's just an example. That's just for everything you do, really. Train yourself first and then go and do other things. So don't don't worry too much about what you say or what you do. Many cultures have different uh, traditions and ceremonies and uh, rituals, but none of those have any meaning beyond being the uh, uh, accepted way of doing things. And as far as expressing gratitude, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no accepted or, or, or agreed upon way of doing that. Just speak from the heart with a heart of mindfulness. Does one eat and drink out of attachment? That is, if we eat and drink to sustain ourselves and do not starve to death out of attachment. It does definitely seem like a wrong view. I just cannot think of why. Well, you've created a, 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 what, a, a false dichotomy, I guess, where it either is or isn't. And it's like saying, when you speak, do you speak out of attachment? When you walk, do you walk out of attachment? And the answer, of course, is sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. So eating and drinking, there's no reason to think why it would be any different. I mean, there is reason because we think there's some kind of exterior, ulterior motive, like an attachment to living or that sort of thing. But um, it, it it isn't the case. There is no thing that we could do that would... Um, by the act itself, uh, require clinging. It's only the circumstances and the the reasons for doing it. So you can eat uh, without any attachment to the food, just as a matter of course, because well, now it's the time to eat. Um, there, there are, there are certain, I mean, it, it obviously, there, there is a difference between 
these sorts of simple actions and practically speaking a lot of actions that an enlightened being wouldn't do someone without attachment there are so many things they wouldn't do of course uh because of the lack of a reason to do them like even to the extent of going out of their way to acquire food and drink so an enlightened being wouldn't do that because this is kind of what you're getting at they don't have any reason to do that there's no attachment doesn't mean they wouldn't eat and drink in certain situations they just wouldn't go out of their way unless there were food realistically given to them and if food was given to them well they would eat and if there was water it was uh, i mean you might say that's pushing it a little far and they might um get up and take a drink of water if if they needed water it usually comes down to a reason for continuing their existence for example teaching others um but we're talking really about a very, very rare and special and extreme state. So, I mean, the answer is complicated. I guess all I wanted to say is that it's not really so much the eating and drinking out of attachment. It's the reasons for why you are, first of all, eating and drinking, and second of all, going out of your way to obtain food and drink. So for most of us, there's going to be attachment involved to pretty much everything we do, uh, even just to the extent of attachment to attaining enlightenment, because we're not there yet, and it's reasonable. We shouldn't um, let go of the idea of becoming enlightened. And you might argue that as a result, you can't really call it attachment. It, it kind of is. I mean, there is still going to be desire. There is still going to be... Um, well, there's still going to be some kind of attachment until one becomes enlightened. And as a result, there will still be, um, well, there's somebody going out of your way to get food and drink. I mean, I guess all I wanted to point out to you is it's not the, it's not, you, you can't be categorical about acts. You shouldn't, um, because it would be wrong to to find rules like this where you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that because it would be based on attachment. That's not the point. The point is you should uh, focus on your experiences to the point that you give up attachment, and then you don't have to worry about what, what whether what you're doing is right. That's really the point, is we often focus on, is it right to do this? Is it right to do that? And once you have no attachment, well... And then you'll know what a person with no attachment does. And sometimes, yeah, they do they do not go out of their way to get food and drink and might even peacefully pass away as a result of not being able to easily access it. My mind is somehow activating during meditation. It is not just thinking or distracted, I think. I try to observe this. Should I go back to the abdomen and ignore it? Well, you shouldn't ignore any experience. Ignoring things is the antithesis of mindfulness. Well, it's one of them. It's, it's the opposite of being mindful. Mindfulness is about confronting. However, I would question the, the statement that my mind is somehow activating. That's not actually something that happens. That's not actually something that is possible to happen because my mind isn't something that exists. Nothing is mine, yours, and you making it into mine is called mamankara, make my making. It's a meaning that you attach to something, my mind. Now, to be fair, it is, it is useful for us to specify that you're not talking about someone else's mind. But still, there is no entity that one could call a mind. Minds are moments. The reality of mind is this, mo this aspect of momentary experience that is aware of the object. It is aware in the experience. Part of the experience that is aware, that is the mind, and it arises and ceases. So as a result, there's not something that can activate, and activating is a very conceptual idea that you've 
come up with to describe what is happening. So I would ask you, challenge you to be more accurate with what is actually happening rather than what you interpret it to mean. Because you haven't actually told me about an experience. You've described some sort of experience in abstract terms when the experience has got to be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking because that's all that's actually real. So my guess is there might be a feeling. Often there are calm feelings associated with these sort of seemingly special, these things we give special meaning to. There's a calm feeling. And that calm feeling somehow takes on a life of its own and we say it means this or it means that. Or there can also just be an awareness. Uh, It can be awareness of the state of mind. The mind is very clear or the mind is very sharp or something like that. But that's still just a state of mind just an uh, the nature or the quality of the mind and you should note it so you can note we usually note the mind things as knowing when you're aware of something happened or a certain kind of knowing say knowing knowing or if you feel something you would just say feeling feeling that's actually what i would guess is happening i mean it really comes down to those two it can't really be anything else and then th- thinking all of the rest what you make it out to be is all just thinking and potentially attaching maybe you like it maybe you don't like it all of these things these are ingredients they're what's actually there that come together to give you this sense of something more but that's only a sense it's only a perception it doesn't actually exist it's just you making it out to be something i'm 13 and i see some kids doing very bad things like vaping I don't want to report them because I don't want to cause them suffering, but isn't reporting them the right thing to do? What should I do? It's a good, um, it's an interesting question, a good question. The question of, um, the question of, well, preventing other people from doing bad deeds, um, the question of, punishing other people for doing bad deeds, you have to understand that there's an aspect of that in what you're saying. If reporting someone is going to to cause them harm, we don't often look at it like that. Like suppose some a mass murderer is out. Well, you want them to be caught and put in jail and even potentially, well, we don't, of course, but people, even Buddhists would say you want them to be caught and put in jail. Some And non-Buddhists would say killed. They should be shot. Should have the police shoot them when they catch them kill them but this is you have to understand there's an aspect of that that is is harming that person and you're harming a human being you are causing harm if you do those things so if you report on someone there is a, a, a there has to be a sense of understanding that you're going to cause them some harm in certain cases there's a debate over whether that could be um that could be reasonable but I think in, in Buddhism, honestly, all that's reasonable is self-defense. If, for example, someone is smoking cigarettes uh, in a closed space where there's young children, let's say, well, in defense of those children, you have to maybe even report them so that they stop. I mean, hopefully you can tell them and they'll stop. I read a story once where recently where someone asked a person to stop smoking near an emergency room a doctor a surgeon came outside and asked a person not to smoke outside of an emergency room and the person shot this the surgeon shot and killed him so, so i mean that that really doesn't have anything to do with this but um it certainly is reasonable to do that however you have to understand that uh, yeah i guess the point being Reporting them might be the safer thing to do to someone who is is in charge of taking care of those things. That that's kind of self defense, you could say. Um, because apart from that, you're you you are creating karma. You are intending for that person to suffer, uh, for that person to not get what they want. And if it's not in self defense, if it's not harming someone else then uh, there's not really any reasonable um, reason to do that. Now, of course, the logic is that, well, they're harming themselves, say, if someone is smoking 
let's say smoking cigarettes because it's more clear if someone is smoking actual cigarettes then they are harming themselves but so so okay so that gets to the other side of um stopping people from harming themselves from doing bad things so we can stop people from doing bad things in self-defense that makes some sense that's reasonable but stopping people from doing bad things just because it harms them the issue is what is good for you is to refrain from evil and perform good and purify your mind these are the three things that are good for you and and really what that means is that's all that is good for you to ever do to abstain from doing evil yourself and to do all sorts of good things and to purify your mind meaning your activity should always be confined to what is to some extent in your own best interest and all i mean by that is you forcing yourself on someone else um pushing them to to not do something that they want is a is going outside of your own uh, purity of mind let's say so it's going to involve some aversion to what they're doing some desire for them to change maybe even some arrogance and conceit um, ultimately delusion because you're entering on a path that has no solution and it's the path of preventing other people from doing bad deeds. There is no resolution that comes from that. There's no end. You can never come to a conclusion where you say, there, I've stopped every person from doing bad deeds. So even if we were to be um, unreasonably optimistic and naive to think that and we thought that somehow you could convince people and, and people would take it the right way, you still would never come to an end of, of beings. You know, you, how are you going to find all the beings in the world to st stop them from doing bad things? You know, going out of your way to, to make other people stop doing bad deeds is going to be full of all sorts of problems, mental problems for you, because it's unreasonable. Uh, and more likely what's going to happen if we stop being overly optimistic and naive, then we'll realize that when we do try to stop other people from doing what we see as bad things, um, they're going to be very angry and we're going to create a lot of bad karma. We're going to make them them worse. We're going to not make them, not set them on a good path, but set them on a bad path. Of course, that's not to speak of if we tell on them, if we go and report them. And finally, um, I think there is some leeway, and well, we can see that there's some leeway for criteria in this regard. So, A, how harmful is what they're doing? Like if a person is going to kill themselves, like jump off a bridge or jump off of a building, versus if someone's inhaling nicotine. And B, uh, what is our relationship to the individual? A perfect stranger, again, we don't necessarily have the um, the obligation or the the right, I guess. No, we don't. We don't. It's not our place to intervene, even if they're trying to kill themselves. And furthermore, even if we are in a closer relationship to them, if they are doing something that is kind of benign or, or um, well, re, uh, relatively benign, like vaping, then again, you'd have to you'd, your relationship would have to be very close to feel like it was reasonable to intervene 
Like I would think only it would be only on someone's parents to say, no, you cannot vape because uh, that is wrong and something you should learn to see as wrong. But if you're not their parents, that would be the only example I could think of where trying to stop other people from vaping would be the reasonable thing to do. Buddhism is about letting go. It's about becoming free. And if you're if you're not letting go, you're not, never going to become free. You're always going to be getting involved and trying to change other people and trying to change the world. Lao Tzu said, do you want to change the world? I don't think it can be done. Well, that's the English translation, the fairly poor English translation that I know of anyway. We're not uh, here to try to change the world. We're here to change our own minds. So try and look at your state of mind when you do something. Really, ultimately, remember this, if you don't remember all the many meandering words that I've already said there. Remember that it's not what you do. It's your state of mind when you do it. And you can tell something's not right, or it's not the right time at least to do something if your state of mind is agitated and, and upset and angry or, or disturbed or displeased. So if you cultivate mindfulness, you know, just be present with yourself. Take some time to walk and sit and be present with your state of mind as you move your mind to the foot and move your mind to the stomach. What's going on in your mind? You'll start to become more familiar with how your mind works, with the mind's tendency to react to experiences and get attached to them and 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 get upset about them and you'll be able to free yourself from some of that and then you'll have a better perspective on what's actually important what's actually the right thing to do i am finally getting the gist of meditation i want to try to meditate for a longer period is it recommended for a beginner without a teacher? For example, six hours? Well, a beginner without a teacher is a recipe for disaster, a recipe for, for problems. Um, I don't think any beginner should go without a teacher. That's just, um, that's just common sense. So I would recommend to find a way to do a course under a teacher. If you're a beginner, yeah, I mean, you say that you're a beginner. If you weren't a beginner, I might say, well, you can put what you've learned from a teacher into practice on your own. There's no real danger there, but you really should at least start with guidance. That's the best way. Incidentally, I don't know if you're aware, but we have an at-home meditation course that we offer for free that you could take up at home just doing an hour of meditation a day at least. You can do more if you want. But it would be under guidance, and you'd meet with a teacher every week to progress you through a formal course of meditation. And then, of course, we offer intensive courses at our center, which would be a great follow-up to that. That would give you a good foundation to go out and practice on your own. During sitting meditation, I tried to note any distractions that arise, including happiness, anger, disliking, etc. But I am having trouble proceeding through the touching points. Do you have any advice? Well, as long as you're able to go through the points at least once per session, that's my rule of thumb. If you're not able to go through them at least once, then yeah, you've, you've got to maybe deal with something. Maybe be more mindful during daily life. Um, of course, being systematic about your mindfulness during practice, always keeping an eye on the five hindrances because they're what's going to get in the way, especially, let's say, distraction. If you're distracted, like restless, or the mind is not focused. And the others as well, if you have doubts, if you have likes, wants or likes or dislikes, the hindrances are going to get in your way and not noting any of the four foundations of mindfulness will get in your way there's something you're avoiding noting but again once per session is enough i mean if you're getting more than that that's great but sometimes you go through them more many many times at the expense of actually being mindful so you ignore what's actually happening because you think i've got to get through these points and that's wrong practice as well 
if something comes up to take your mind away, even momentarily from the rising, falling, or sitting, or touching, you have to take that distraction as the object, not something that's distracting you from your practice. It's a valid object of meditation. You have to give it the attention that it needs. Thank you, Bhante. That was the last question in the top tier. We've crossed the hour. Great timing. Well, thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help. Of course. And thank you, everyone, for your questions. Hope it was helpful. If you didn't get your questions answered or if you have more questions, again, you can always post them on our Discord server. Uh, you can come to our Saturday morning study group or you can come back next week at the same time. Have a good week, everyone. May you all beings be free from suffering. May you all find peace, happiness, and freedom. Sadhu. Sadhu.